0: You all, if you've been reading Scripture long enough, you understand uh, there are very, uh, various uh, illustrations that describe the life of the Christian, and uh, Paul describes it as a fight at one point, or a couple points. Uh, the author to the, uh, the author of the, of the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, or Hebrews, um, describes it as a race, you remember that, it's a, it's a race. And get off the things that entangle you, uh, so you make it in the end. And interestingly, there are people who uh, run the race and make it. This is not a kind of race where only one person wins. You cross the finish line, you win. You cross the finish line, you win. But not everyone crosses the finish line. Some people don't run. Some people are like, this race is stupid. I don't want anything to do with it. Some people pretend to run, but it is the pressures that the world applies to the runners that causes them to give up and quit. And that is, uh, I think, a dangerous spot to be in. The people who think they are in and think they're worshiping correctly, and they're not. And so there are people who overtly reject Christianity and they claim atheism and things like that but there's another category of people who claim to be running the race but they're running a totally different race it's not the race that Christ has set before us and they don't make it to the end so the book of Revelation with all the beasts and the monsters and the scorpions and the locusts and the marks and the 666 and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls all that stuff We can try our best to interpret all those things and put those symbols together. That's what I'm trying to do as we move through the series. But let us not lose sight of the, the, the main import of the book of Revelation. Is saints are to conquer. And conquering means crossing that finish line. Making it all the way to the end. Making it all the way to the end. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to Revelation 13. Some of you maybe have been geeking out, waiting for us to get to this. Um, But this is a a famous passage where you've got these beasts. It it culminates in this 666 number, this mark. Uh, It's chock full of things, and I'm going to try my best to get us through it uh, this morning and to make sense of it. But as we begin, and let's just begin with the first four verses, we see here... Uh, we've already been introduced to the dragon. The dragon is Satan, right? Okay? Satan secures worship through the empowerment of world leaders. Satan secures worship, ultimately for himself, through the empowerment of world leaders. Look at verses 1 through 4. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea "...with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, crowns, on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? As we look at this passage, we see that the beast is not Satan, right? Satan is behind the beast, empowering the beast. The beast represents Satan. Uh, authority to rule the beast is satan's human employment on the earth to rule through a human ruler and we've already seen this beast in chapter 11 who makes war on god's witnesses so we've been introduced to this beast who comes out of the uh, out of the abyss and remember i told you we don't work at least the way i'm laying out revelation for you we're not following everything in in strict chronology this happens next this happens next So how many times does the beast come out of the abyss? It's recapitulatory. We're just changing the camera angles, okay? So we're kind of back to that scene from chapter 11 where the beast comes out and makes war on God's witnesses. But this beast represents human rulers who stand against the Lord by oppressing God's people. That's what the beast is about. The beast is how Satan uh, rebels against the Lord by oppressing, attacking, persecuting God's people. Uh, one author notes that without exception, the imagery of a, of a sea monster in the Old Testament always represents evil kingdoms who persecute God's people. So I'll leave that to you to go research sea monsters in the Bible and see how it's, it's, the sea monsters are used to, to represent symbolically actual physical kingdoms, Attack God's people. This is not Middle Earth. This is not Tolkien, you know. This is these are symbols used to describe what's actually happening on earth with real governments and real rulers and actual persecution, real Christians getting oppressed, jailed, killed. And that's how the Old Testament has always used that imagery of of a sea monster. Uh, If you're familiar with Daniel, Daniel interprets these ten horns and his visions as Ten different kings. And the diadems and the crowns that are on those heads uh, speak to their positions of earthly authority. Uh, This is speaking to total domination, total power. Ten representing this totality. Seven, is this perfection sort of. Total domination. This is uh, the the world rulers don't have competition. And uh, this beast arises from the same place as the dragon right the beast comes out of the sea just as we saw the dragon come out of the sea so they come from the same place that doesn't mean the human ruler is a demon it just means the empowerment and the authority that's given to these human rulers comes from hell and this beast arises out of the abyss or out of the sea it's the same it's the chaotic void from which the dragon comes and this beast is his minion and that means that earthly oppressive rulers are backed and in a sense produced by Satan. That's, that's John peeling back the curtain so you can see what's behind the scenes. What's actually happening back there? And it's not some little dorky dude pulling levers to make it seem scary. It's the opposite of Oz. The thing behind the ruler is scarier. It says that he's full of blasphemies. Now these blasphemies come. Blasphemies come in different shapes and sizes, but it seems here that it's about worship directed at something else besides God. That's blasphemous. To worship, the worship that we're supposed to give to God goes to something else or someone else. That's blasphemous. To call someone else God is blasphemous. To give ascriptions to, to things that belong to God. Who is like the beast? Remember the song we, we, one of the songs we sang last week, who was like him? You're supposed to only ask that of God, not a beast, but it's taking things that belong to God and applying them to someone else. It's blasphemous to call someone else so great that no one can fight against it. So that's what the blasphemies are about Now, In the setting in which Revelation was written, of course, Rome was full of these blasphemies. They were full of claims to deity. There were false gods everywhere. They were conquered people. And like, okay, we can incorporate your gods into our system of gods as long as Caesar is at the top. There were temples all over the place, even in in the cities in which we saw the seven letters to the seven churches. Even the coins attributed deity to the human emperor. So as you buy and sell, you're reminded of the Caesar worship in your buying and selling. And it's this recognition of deity that was demanded by the empire. So for the original audience, the beast is clearly Rome. I I don't think the original readers would have read this and not be thinking Rome. So I I agree with most commentators there that there's some, Rome somehow fulfills this this beast role. Now some think Rome fulfilled it and we're done. There's no more beast. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think that's a mistake. For the original audience, the beast is clearly Rome. I'll try to do this quickly, but you might want to make a note of Daniel 7 and check that out later. Daniel sees uh, four different beasts. He sees a leopard, a bear, a lion, and one that's so gnarly it doesn't even have a hum- uh, an earthly animal to describe it. It's got iron teeth. The thing's crazy. But he sees four different beasts. But here, notice the four beasts are combined into one. The feet of this one, the whatever, right? It's part... It's part bear. The feet are the bear's feet. Uh, uh, It it was like a leopard, he says, verse 2, but it had the mouth of a lion. He's taking Daniel's separate beasts and combining them into one beast, okay? That's what he's doing from these images that come from Daniel. So here's what I think. I think as Daniel was tracking, and this is clear, I don't think this is really debated that much, but Daniel was tracking four successive kingdoms. Each beast represented a different kingdom. This one's going to come, and then this one's even worse, and then this one's even worse, and then the fourth one is so bad, the first three don't even compare to it. That's what Daniel's beasts were representing, Um, and I think uh, probably that fourth beast is, is Rome in Daniel 7 but not necessarily locked down to just Rome. Why? Because this image combines them all together. It's like combining famous empires of the past and putting them all together into one image to foreshadow similar empires to come. Does that make sense? So four successive ones, John is going, man, it's, it's all one thing as it appears. Now some think, well, that just means there is going to be one big one coming in the end. But like I said, Rome fulfills it, but we've seen similar things to Rome. And all these years later, we can look back on history and see similar things. That's why every generation thinks they've got, they know who the Antichrist is. Someone always fits the bill. And every generation and every, uh, all over the globe. So I think this is showing what oppressive regimes and empires are like. They're like beasts that are employed by Satan. He lets them out of the cage, and this is what they do. They oppress Christians, and they demand false worship. This is what oppressive governments employed by Satan act like. Satan was behind the kingdoms of Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Sodom, and Rome, and it didn't end there. It's a pattern that persists and continues Uh, John's visions are showing us what lies behind it they're not just crazy dudes that are power hungry although that's true it is also satanic when we think of satanic we think of pentagrams and cults with weird outfits horns right all the light bulbs are red and their meetings and they're standing up front tearing bibles well sure that is satanic But even those people, when you hear them interviewed, they're like, well, we don't believe in an actual Satan. We just really hate Christianity. But what John, for the most part, is talking about is not satanic cults. They're like when you watch the UN gatherings. Some of those people. Or the people that they're gathering and trying to talk about. They're world rulers. I'm not saying every world ruler is satanic. But there are times throughout history where we see this sort of beastly oppression of God's people and it's through government that Satan applies that pressure on Christians. Interestingly, Satan is described the same way. Remember back in chapter 12, he had seven heads, he had the seven crowns, he had the ten horns, and then the beast has the same ones. See that? So is the beast Satan? The beast is Satan's human avatar for seven of you that makes sense okay it's it's satan's way of engaging in this world in a physical way he right he raises up human leaders in this world and so satan is across the generations satan is not a one-time threat so similarly the beast is not necessarily just one spot in the chronology of the world see what i'm trying to say human rulers rise and fall they live, they die, but Satan doesn't. And he doesn't go, well, Rome didn't work. I guess I'll sit back and watch the next 2,000 years and see what happens again. He does it again. Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, you name it. He does it again and again and again. So I think it would be a mistake to not see Rome here. I also think it would be mistake, a mistake to only see Rome here, as if this didn't apply to further generations of Christians Now, here's what some of you might be asking. Is this the Antichrist? Is is that what John is describing here? Is is he describing the Antichrist? And it's complicated. It's complicated. Uh, It might be more complicated than you realize. I'm not sure if you realize that the term Antichrist doesn't appear in Revelation at all. Ever. Revelation doesn't say Antichrist. There's coming an Antichrist, and Antichrist is going to be here. It doesn't use the word Antichrist antichrist john's epistles use it you know john's little short little letters they use it so antichrist appears five times in the bible and all of them are in first and second john and i'll just give you a little synopsis of what that's about there and then we'll compare it to this text and i'll try to do this briefly in first john chapter two and if you want to turn there it's just a couple books in front of where you are now you don't have to In 1 John chapter 2, down in verse 18, listen, here's what John says. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, notice it, it doesn't say that the Antichrist is coming, but as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He begins and ends with, hey guys, it's the last hour. It's the last hour. You know how you know it's the last hour? Not just because we know Antichrist is coming, but because as we look around us, Antichrists are already here, and many more are going to come. So we think in terms of Antichrists, plural. Not one dude, and we're checking the newspaper, like, could this be the guy? Antichrists, plural, okay? And that is how John says we know that it is the last hour, now, you want to talk about symbolic terms. When, John, when they finished reading John's letter, but before they broke for lunch, did the Antichrist come? Hour just means, hey guys, this is a short time, but it's the end. And you might say, well, it's been 2,000 years. Yeah, it's, it's a symbol of, in the grand scheme of things, Okay, this is going to be a short time. Now, as John continues, he teaches that... What an Antichrist looks like. Okay, First John two twenty two. So just a couple verses down. If you did turn First uh, John two eighteen, this is First John two twenty two. There, John teaches anyone. What what is the Antichrist? Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ and in so doing denies the Father and the Son is Antichrist. So your uncle, or your aunt, or somebody that when you were a little kid they always went to church, but eventually they decided to deny Christ, that's Antichrist. That's what John said. he like, that conflicts with a lot of the books I have on my shelves, a lot of the Christian fiction books. Who cares? Right? We're, we're not interpreting Revelation with your shelf of Christian fiction. We should do it the other way. And let the Bible define for us what an Antichrist is. The Antichrist is a heretic. The Antichrist, in 1 John 4, verse 3, are false prophets that deny Jesus is from God. 1 John 4, 3. They are false prophets that deny Jesus is from God. And then, really interestingly, I think this is really key, so I'm going to include it. 2 John 2, 2, 7. Listen to what John adds. He says, uh, They're deceivers who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. There are deceivers who deny the the basic Christian doctrine that Jesus has come. Christmas. They deny the meaning of Christmas, okay? And they deceive people to also buy into their deceit. Now listen to what John says in, in 2 John 2, 7. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Two things I want to point out there. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. It would be a mistake to say, oh, the Antichrist is only somebody who denies Christmas. But if you deny other things that are basic to Christianity, you might have some trouble, but at least you're not an Antichrist. Such a one means people like that. People that fill that kind of role, they, they deny basic, orthodox, Christian things that we know, that Christians agree. across. I mean, we might debate about infant baptism. We might debate about, you know, what the, I don't know, what people should wear. I don't know, the various things that denominations might quibble about. But the deity of Christ, the Trinity... they they, these these cults and these deceivers and these false teachers cut right to the core and they start undoing the most basic things and john says such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist now here he says the antichrist isn't that interesting the antichrist you would think oh the one singular guy that we're waiting for and he says well the antichrist is anybody who who peddles heresy Now you see when I have a little charge in my step with regard to interpreting Revelation, how it's kind of annoying. Some churches, not not all churches, but some churches, the way they teach Revelation is like, we're waiting for one big bad villain and he might not be here yet. So we're kind of safe. Brothers and sisters, I tell you, you're not safe. Antichrist want to pull you out of the race by telling you this is the wrong race. The real race is over here switch numbers, and come over here. They're not telling you, "Ah, just give up on the race, it's stupid. They're telling you, Jesus is real, but what you are taught about him is wrong. And they twist Jesus into something else. They still want you focused on Jesus. It's a different Jesus. That's what antichrists do. They don't stand against Christ by trying to get you to buy into Satan. They stand against Christ by trying to get you to buy into a false Christ. That's how it's deceiving. Who in the world would follow a guy who walks into our church with a big old cape and red horns and a pitchfork and like, hey guys, listen to something else. No, they come in holding this. And you're not a good student of it. They run circles around you by showing you stuff you haven't seen before. Well, real sheep know the voice of the shepherd. But those who are not truly invested in the race would be duped by a different Jesus. You know why? Because it's always a more comfortable Jesus. The Jesus that allows you to do what you want, a Jesus created in your own image. That's a much easier race to run. So here in this chapter... This beast is not called the Antichrist, but this beast clearly stands against Christ, even imitating Christ, trying to usurp Christ and replace Christ with false worship. So I don't think we're talking strictly about one isolated figure. We're talking about a pattern of Antichrist that probably, I'll grant, probably culminates in one or more final world leaders before the the final, final end that epitomized this beast more than any ruler has epitomized the beast before then. That's totally plausible. I just think it would be a mistake to pin the Antichrist to only one person coming and all these current world leaders that are already killing Christians, that are already demanding worship, that are already not letting them buy and sell, that are already decapitating Christians, jailing Christians, shooting them in the head, live streaming it for everybody to see. Oh, the beast isn't here yet. I just think that's foolish Beast has been here he just takes different forms that's why he has multiple heads these are different kings so let's talk about those heads specifically down in verse um, 3 the the mortal wound that he bore to his head well down in verse 14 you're going to see this wound was inflicted by a sword but it lived anyway I'm going to do this quickly, but I think I need to unpack it briefly. Some interpret this death blow to be the victory of Christ on the cross. Uh, this is the victory promised in Genesis 3.15. You remember the serpent will bite the heel of the promised Messiah, but the Messiah will crush his head. Um, and so it's this head crushing that the dragon experiences through his minion. It's a fatal blow, but he's, he's still living out his last days, so to speak. Um, that's possible. Most seem to see it as playing out in reality in some way. Uh, a common interpretation is uh, Nero in 68 AD, where uh, Nero committed suicide. But many thought Nero would come back. There were many people that were waiting for Nero to come back with a different army and, and take over Rome again. As many uh, people as hated Nero, he, he had a following. Uh, there's some overlap there some would say well it's not that Nero would come back but Nero died the empire seemed vulnerable and then Vespasian took over with his powerful sons and the empire that seemed to take a mortal blow by the suicide of their emperor bounced back and and came back kind of like the two witnesses as we talked about the church always bounces back the beast bounced back too I I think that's very plausible again if, if Nero fits the bill there you go uh, but he's not the final beast, obviously. Um, besides that, one of the seven heads bears the wound, and the seven heads of Satan don't bear any wounds. So there seems to be a difference here. Be- between the heads, they're different rulers, and the heads of the beast are not the same as the heads of Satan. The beast is powered by, and the beast is, it serves the devil, but the beast is not the devil himself. It's human rulers. So I think it's human rulers that sometimes... Seem to suffer defeat. And before Christians all over the world can go, oh, thank the Lord, Hitler committed suicide. That'll be the last world war. No. There'll be another. Just like there was another Nero. So it's, that's partly, I think, what's happening there with the fatal wound, and everyone's in awe by it. You see that there? They're like, whoa. He, he, he comes back, and there's this, this, this power, this strength. Whether that was specifically Nero or, or plays out in, in other rulers throughout history, uh, I am reminded of the, uh, the uh, attempts on Hitler's life that failed, and it just empowered him in front of everybody. Like, look at this guy, man. You can't bomb him. You can't, right? The Valkyrie, the whole Valkyrie thing, for instance. Bonhoeffer's attempt, for instance, foiled, foiled, and foiled Again. Which seemed to make him almost like a godlike figure. I'm not saying Hitler's the beast. You understand what I'm saying by now. These are patterns that, if the shoe fits, yeah, that's that's a beastly antichrist. But here's what I think is more to the point: it's the parallel between Christ and the beast, or I should say, between beast and the Christ, which is laid thick in Revelation. Both of them place their names on the heads of their followers. So I'm showing you the, the similarities between the beast and Christ. They both place their names on the heads of their followers. Uh, they both have horns, which speaks the power. They both bear the wound of having been slain. Remember the lamb back in the throne room, standing there as he's been slain? John hears the lion, but when he looks, he sees the lamb as though slain. And then here you have the dragon with one of its heads, as if slain. They both uh, gain new life and new authority after that slaying, and their authority is over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, we're told. Christ has authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, but right now in a sort of an invisible way, and eventually a total way. But right now, with our human eyes, what we see is the beast in charge of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, And they both receive universal worship. We could keep going, but what I'm trying to show you is an imitation. The beast imitates Christ in order to secure Christ. That's what I'm saying. It's not Satan instead of Jesus. It's false Jesus instead of Jesus. And Satan mimics the things that Jesus uses to secure worship for himself. He mimics that to secure worship for something else besides Christ. So all those similarities between the beast and Christ speak to that imitation. It's showing how the devil tries to usurp Christ's reign and role as king by, by setting up his own human rulers. They never last, but he, he keeps it up until Christ's return. It'll probably ramp up before the final end, but it will persist. This is more about the devil's work through governments than it is about any specific government. It matches Rome, and it might culminate in the future in another spot-on iteration in some coming ruler or empire. But the significance of these parallels shows that Christ's opponent, his ultimate opponent, can't be limited to just one historical person. G.K. Beale writes this, that is, just as Christ's rule spans the whole church age, so the evil activities of his ultimate counterpart, the devil and his servants, span the whole time. Now this analysis leaves open the possibility of an Antichrist who comes at the end of history and incarnates the devil in a greater way than anyone ever before. Now, here's interesting. Whether this consummate expression of evil will be manifested in an individual or an institution is hard to say. Probably, as throughout history, so at the end, the individual tyrant is not to be distinguished from the kingdom or institution that he represents, so the beast, G.K. was is saying, the beast, is it a person or is it a, an empire? He's like, yes. I mean, we can't talk about systems without talking about people. That's why it's so unhelpful to talk about systemic injustice, that whole conversation. We're not saying injustice don't exist, but when you don't apply it to actual people and actual policies, it just stays this sort of ambiguous thing. It, it's hard to nail it down. So we don't want to say, the beast is just institutions. Well, yeah, institutions with people <laughs> leading it. It's both. So, um, just as we saw in 1 John, he teaches that there, there's a coming Antichrist, sure. There are many Antichrists now already among us. And then similarly, I won't get into it, but 1 Thessalonians 2, you might want to mark that down and look it up later. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about a coming man of lawlessness. He doesn't say Antichrist. He calls it the man of lawlessness. Okay. Or, or the son of perdition. And listen, Paul says, Paul says there's a, a man of lawlessness coming. He says that, and then he says, but the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So there's Paul also saying, sure, there's an, an ultimate expression of a guy or an institution run by a guy coming that will that'll signal the final, final end, but it's already here. So we don't look to the horizon like, I wonder when the Antichrist is coming. I think that's the wrong posture. The right posture is, what are the iterations of it now that we need to be aware of? It's already at work. Already at work doing what? Verse 4, the dragon secures worship through the beast by granting power to the beast, impressive feats, authority to rule, and even bouncing back from defeats. He seems unstoppable to the point where people ask, who is like him? Who can fight against him? So there will likely come a time in the very end where one person or empire serves the the, the purest incarnation of Satan's power and attack on Christ's church. But it would be a mistake not to see the patterns through history for which the shoe fits. Satan is active now, empowering governments, empowering authorities to secure false worship. That gets amped up in the appearance of the second beast, which we'll see in a moment. 5 through 10, let's read it. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. We'll just pause there for a second. The 42 months, we've already seen this in previous sermons. It's the same as three and a half years, which is the same as 1260 days. And the argument I've made in previous sermons is that refers to the entire church age. So I'm not going to dwell there. We talked about blasphemies um, uh, that, that are uttered, uh, These things that only belong to God. And the beast makes war on saints and conquers them. That is, he seemingly defeats them. He doesn't ultimately conquer them. But it looks like Christians are conquered when they're beheaded. It looks like the church is conquered when it's blown up. Or when a shooter intrudes on in a prayer meeting and rat-a-tat-tat kills everybody in the prayer meeting. The church looks defeated then, but it's not. But it looks like it. And so he's, he's given this power and this authority to kill, to arrest to torture and we know that this is actually how saints conquer in the book of revelation we conquer by holding firm to christ even if it means death even unto death so believers who persevere no matter what are the real conquerors and just as just as this is the fake messiah with a fake resurrection wielding fake authority this is a fake conquering It only looks like it, but it's not true conquering. Fake meaning temporary, not not ultimate. So the call here is for believers to persevere. Look at 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is a reference to Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah 43. There it's about Israel going into captivity as punishment for their rebellion. Here it's about the church being persecuted as punishment by the state for their faithfulness, actually. So the call is for saints to endure by only worshiping the Lord our God, even if they put a gun to your head. Now, Scripture requires obedience to the state. We know that, right? Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, 2. God put the government there, and we're supposed to obey them with regard to laws that do not contradict worship. But when they persecute faithfulness, the call for endurance does not mean fighting back. It means compliance and acceptance of punishment. When they came to arrest Jesus, he went. When they came to arrest the apostles, they went. Peter tried pulling out his sword. You remember that? And Jesus like, put the sword back. This is not about the Second Amendment, your rights. This is about persecution for being a believer, and not not leading a revolt against the beast as the answer. That's what it says. If anyone, if you're taken captive, you're taken captive. It sounds cold. If anyone's to be slain with the sword, hey, you're slain with the sword. But he's just cutting to the chase. What if they show up at your door? with guns, and ask you to deny the faith. Now, some of us are like, wow, that's hard to imagine. Is it? I don't think we're real far from that. And we see it happening all over the globe. You would have to be an insular American Christian and ignore what Christians are enduring everywhere else in the world, right now, to think that this just seems like fiction. It's not. Would we be ready for it? This is difficult, and we can't do it aside from God's grace, but the call is to endure to the end. So right here in the middle of the two beasts, we have the main idea, which is this. Satan uses world leaders to demand denial of Christ, but we must endure to the end, even unto death. I'll give that to you one more time, and we'll just look at the second beast quickly. Satan uses world leaders to demand denial of Christ. If we deny Christ, Satan won. doesn't matter how he gets you there, what route. He, but he uses world leaders, not only world leaders, but he uses world leaders to demand denial of Christ, but we must endure to the end, even unto death. Now we see Satan doesn't only use oppressive government alone, but he secures false worship, yes, through brute force, but also through religiosity and control of trade. Through religiosity and control of trade. This is how the second beast is used of the devil. Let's read 11 to the end of the chapter and then I'll do my best to just unpack uh, its meaning. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb. There's the imitation. And it spoke like a dragon. That's why Jesus' sheep can hear his voice. Wow, he looks like a lamb, but man, when he talks, that, that actually sounds satanic. Listen to that. so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So, as I said, verses 11 through 18 show us that he uses religiosity and control of trade to secure that false worship of the first beast. This beast has authority, it is derived authority. The dragon gives authority to the first beast, the first beast gives authority to the second beast. They all work together, sort of as a false what? Trinity. This authoritative figure mimics Jesus, the lamb. It has two horns. It's lamb-like, even though it speaks like a dragon. It is from the land, whereas the first beast is from the sea. That could be mimicry as well. Remember back in chapter 10, the the Christ-like angel gives the scroll to John, and he's got one foot in the sea and one foot on the land. And there I communicated, this is God's sovereignty over all things. And here the beast is like, I got that. I got one beast out of the sea and one beast out of the lamb. It's it's mimicry again. It's imitation. It does seem that the second beast has primarily a religious role because later, throughout the rest of Revelation, this second beast is called the false prophet. I'm going to give you three verses for those of you who take notes. We're not going to go there. The second beast is called the false prophet in 1613. 1920 and 2010. 1613, 1920 and 2010. So the second beast is called the false prophet. It's like uh, the first beast is the king, and this guy is like a priestly figure or a prophetic religious figure who s- convinces people to worship the state, worship the empire, or the, the one who's sitting on the throne. True prophets lead people to worship the Lord, false prophets lead people away from the Lord. Uh, this false prophet leads people to worship the governing ruler or the empire, but he secures it by mimicking Christ. It's plausible. It's attractive. False prophets arise from the church just as they did in the Old Testament. So here's, here's the thing. The scary nature of the second beast is not Islam. It's, it's more like Christian sects. Or cults, because they're imitating Christianity as much as they can. I guess there are parallels with Islam that that, where the shoe can fit there too. But as we saw with the letters to the seven churches, these these dangers arise from inside the church. Jesus predicted this in Matthew twenty four. So it's so it's likely that this false prophet beast arises within the covenant community, urging and teaching cooperation with the state or governing governing authorities. Hey guys, let's just do what the state says. Here's scripture verses to proof text it, that, that kind of mode. That's using religion. So the dragon uses the second beast to manipulate people by employing religion. He imitates the power of the truth. Real quickly, the fire that is, that is breathed out, remember the two witnesses that were preaching in chapter 11, they breathe out fire too. And I, as I said there, do we really think two prophets are going to come in the future and they're walking down Devon and breathing fire at people? I don't think so. I think the church serves as God's witnesses in this church age, and we breathe the fire of the gospel, which is judgment, repentance, and also hope in the context of the Christian message. But notice there's imitation again. And th- this beast breathes out fire. Hey, we breathe out fire too. You know, they, they do the same miracles that the two witnesses do. And so people are confused. Like, wait, should we follow them? Oh, no, wait, this, is, this fire looks better. This power looks better. It's like uh, when Moses showed up with those miracles and then Pharaoh's Egyptian uh, Egyptian magicians mimicked the miracles. Remember that? Now, eventually they got outpaced by Moses' miracles, but in the beginning for a while there, you're like, what? I thought that would have been the slam dunk. And it wasn't the slam dunk because they're like, we can do that too. You made your staff turn into a serpent. We made our staff turn into a serpent. And so Satan mimics, he imitates to distract you from the genuine article and get you to bind to the counterfeit. That's the strategy. So much to unpack there. I want want to press ahead. Uh, I'm hungry, actually. Okay, so we see this playing out in John's day. Rome is this unprecedented governmental power. Other gods were adopted into their system, but Caesar as Lord was at the top, and you worship Caesar as Lord or die in that context. And even though it seems Scripture points to a final version in the end, we see this playing out in various ways, but, but the, the, the thing that the second beast adds to the picture is that Satan's imitation always seems to works, work best when there's both a kingdom and a priesthood of some kind, right? Where, where, there's, where there is a kind of a Bible and a, a, a spiritual aspect to the thing that convinces you to worship this other thing over here. And that takes many forms and, and many iterations and uh, you know, for a long time, a lot of us were saying atheism is a religion. You've heard this, atheism, and you're like, "How can atheism be a religion?" Have you have you realized that many atheists gather and have their own worship services? It's like they dump church and they miss church, but they can't have church because God doesn't exist. So let's have atheist worship. It doesn't make any sense, but. Satan knows that we have this sort of instinct to be religious, and he uses religion to get you to buy into the state power. The state power doesn't just come along, punch in your door and go, I'm powerful over you, worship me. We probably, most of us, recoil at that. It's the slithery dragon speak of the false teacher that gets people to go, actually, this is God's way. Oh, now worship the state. See, that's where it starts. And then, of course the control of trade, the most egregious iteration is when worship controls even buying and selling, which is the introduction of this mark, this mark of the beast. This mark will identify people as beast worshipers. What is the mark of the beast? I'm going to do this quickly. Some of you want me to slow down. Some of you want me to maybe hurry up. But we're finally here at the mark of the beast, and I just want to give you a a plausible understanding of this. In the Old Testament, God's people were told that the law of God shall be to them as a sign on their, on their hands and a memorial between their eyes. Okay? On your hand and on your forehead, God says, my law is to, is to be there so that it would never depart from your mouth. Exodus 13, 9, for example, many verses. Of course, the Pharisees, you remember, in Jesus' day, took this literally and they built phylacteries with little boxes with little scrolls and they'd wear it on their head and wear it on their arms and they literally would wear scripture on their heads and their arms. The irony was that they kept twisting it and adding to it but we see that all God's people bear his seal on their foreheads we saw that in chapter 7 verse 3 the forehead is what we believe it's what we confess the hands are what we do and how we carry it out it's about total commitment it's it's almost like a a branding of a master on a servant okay and in the old testament it wasn't intended to be literal And with regard to the seal on the saints, even though we bear God's name on our foreheads, it's not literal. So I don't think the mark is literal. And I don't think people take it by mistake. You know, you bought a piece of bread that has a UPC code, and if you work the numbers carefully enough, the missing numbers in the UPC code are 666, and I bought a piece of bread, I didn't know. No. This is how people identify that they are true worshipers or we can flip it and say these are true deniers of Christ. Let me, let me put it more uh, overtly. If you don't have the name of God as a seal on your forehead, you have the mark of the beast because you already deny Christ. You left the race. Don't, don't be scared about a coming politician who might embed things in your palm. Do you follow Christ with the intensity that even if you're kneeling down on a beach with a black bag over your head and they just decapitated your three friends to your left and you're next, all you have to say is you deny Christ. Well, those who are sealed will take the beheading. And those who escape it by denying Christ there in that moment, didn't in that moment take the mark of the beast. They already bear the mark of the beast. That just exposed it. So, there's the inconsistency of taking it figuratively everywhere else, and suddenly when it's the bad guys, oh, that's suddenly literal. I think that's probably a mistake. It's about rejection of Christ. And keep in mind that denying Christ is not to embrace Satan overtly, it's to embrace Satan's imitation of Jesus. That's why it's deceiving. So the mark 666 is super debated. Quick rundown. Two options on that. The mark of the beast is attributed to the beast whose image is worship. So this is actually the mark of the first beast. The second beast is securing the worship of the first beast, right? So it's, it's a governmental thing uh, in the end. But there's two main ways to interpret 666. And uh, the first one is, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it's through the use of gematria. It's a kind of cryptography where letters represent numbers, and by the letters you can calculate the math and get the number, or reverse it and from numbers come up with the letters that create a name. Does that make sense? Okay, so some of you maybe have read mystery novels and I don't know, things like that where you're maybe familiar with that process. But if you've ever learned how to read Roman numerals, you get the concept. V is five, three I's is three, right? X is ten. So letters represent numbers, and that was true for Hebrew, Greek, a lot of ancient languages where they would use letters to represent numbers. Okay, so letters are used to represent 666. If you take the value of 660, and 6, you can reverse engineer that to populate that field with a name, and many believe that that name is Nero. Uh, The other option is that it symbolically refers to either the ultimate Antichrist or to Antichrist powers throughout the church age. Okay, I think it's the second one. Uh, that it symbolically refers to Antichrist-like powers in the world. Perhaps both, that maybe there is someone in the end. But, you know, to get it to, to, to fit Nero, it's possible, but it's a bit cumbersome to get there. This is the critique that came out a while ago with the whole Da Vinci Code stuff, right? And I mean, th- this kind of stuff that comes out, it's like if you, if you turn this into numbers and you flip it like this, you, you, can, you could take Moby Dick and c- create an entire religion out of it if you use Gematra carefully enough, right? You can use 666 and make it be me be- because there's options. They would say, well, Nero doesn't fit, but if you put Kaiser Nero or Nero Kaiser, then it fits, but in order to do that, you've got to use Hebrew instead of Greek. But John was Hebrew, so he probably used Hebrew. Even in the Hebrew, you've got to lop off one of the letters for it to fit. And so it, it, Lucas doesn't fit, but if you put Pastor Lucas, oh my, that doesn't quite fit. How about Reverend Lucas? How about R-E-V Lucas? Oh, now it fits. He's the Antichrist. You, you can get there to almost to, to anywhere from using cryptography for 666. So I, I, I don't think those who would say it's definitely Nero, it's only Nero, and no one else to come, again, I think that's a mistake. I think the best option is that it's symbolic. Real quick, it checks out, because you look at the top of chapter 14 look at the top of chapter 14 and there you see the contrast the name on the foreheads of the believers is a spiritual reality so i don't think you have to nail it down to a physical reality in the mark of the beast it's possible that governments in some places and sometimes or even coming in the future the way in which they secure worship is by securing your buying and selling through a card or a symbol or a certificate or you're signed up you have you need a login and and somehow through that process you have to deny Christ to be, to for that to be official that's possible that would be a physical iteration of the mark but the mark itself is not that login it's not that card it's not that that whatever physical mark even okay the mark is a denial of Christ that's what we should be scared of the lump in the throat is not technology. The lump in the throat is denying Christ when it comes down to it. And one of those pressures the government will put is to make it difficult for you to buy and sell. And that might just be the loss of your job. Do what we do, say what we say, wear this pin, say this thing, and if you don't, you're fired. Now we may not even be at that ultimate Antichrist level yet and already tempted to not run the race because I don't want to go looking for a job. You're not on the beach kneeling with a, a black bag on your head, but you just don't want to lose your job. It's uncomfortable to not have a job. But brothers and sisters, if we're tempted to deny Christ because we're afraid this boyfriend won't date us, we're afraid that this employer won't keep us, you're definitely not ready for the beach with the black bag on the head. If we den- are ready to deny Christ in the small pressures, we'll, we'll never hold firm to him in the, in the hard pressures, right? So again, it's a mistake to look at Revelation and go, oh, phew, this is in the future. I'm good. You may not be good. How do we deal with the, the lighter pressures that we encounter now? So when it says calculate the number, I don't think this is asking us to do ki- cryptography. I think this is asking us to understand that this number 666, even though it's an imitation of Jesus, it's not the real thing. Six is not seven. The triple here is not the, the Trinity. Okay, it falls short. Okay. And so this imitation, it might look attractive, but it's not. It leads to death in the end. It, it 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 leads to being thrown in the lake of fire together with the beast and the false prophet. What's the escape? Look at the middle. Endurance of faith. If you really believe in Christ, this is verse 10, right? If you really believe in Christ, you will endure. Anybody can endure when it's easy. Faith is proved when it's difficult. And we can thank God that probably this afternoon, none of us are going to be kneeling on a beach, you know, with, with guys with swords ready to take our heads off. But let's think about the pressures that are happening now, the things that do get us to doubt and cower and, and feel a little weak, and press into that and go, no, I'm not going to be weak. And whether it's a job loss or, or some other uncomfortable decision, you press forward, you press ahead, because this is what's happening behind the scenes. It's satanic. And we don't follow false Christs. We follow the Christ of the Bible. And we study that and we do that together in community. That's what gets us through to the end. Let's pray.